welcome to episode 30 of Behind the Mission, a show that sparks conversations with PsychArmor trusted partners and educational experts. My name is Dwayne France, and each week I'll be having conversations with podcast guests that will equip you with tools and resources to effectively engage with and support military service members, veterans, and their families. You can find the show on all the podcast players or by going to sycrimer.org forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us on Behind the Mission. Our work and mission are supported by the generous partnerships and sponsors who also believe that education changes lives. This episode is brought to you by PsychArmor, the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military cultural content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners, as well as custom training options for organizations. You can find more about PsychArmor at psycharmor.org. Today, I'll be speaking with Tony Teravainen, President, CEO, and co-founder of Support the Enlisted Project, a nonprofit that provides support to assist young military and veteran families in financial crisis. In this role, Tony oversees the positioning of STEP as a successful, trusted, and viable partner to Southern California and Washington State's military population. Under his guidance, STEP has assisted more than 5,100 military and veteran families in financial crisis move to self-sufficiency through financial counseling and $2.2 million issued in grants with a 90% effectiveness rate. You can find out more about Tony and the Support the Enlisted Project by taking a look at his bio in our show notes. Let's get into my conversation with him and come back afterwards to talk about some of the key points. So you're a military family member, the son of a career Air Force officer, a Navy veteran, a submariner. I'm interested to hear about your journey from a military life, both as a child and an adult, to the corporate sector, and then ultimately work in the nonprofits. Sure. There's a lot baked in there, but I'll start off by saying my dad was enlisted, as I was. So we're at the opposite end of the spectrum from most of the communities we were living in. And that was very shaping for me. I was probably born after he was in the service, maybe four years. My sister was two years older than me. And I think when I was probably one and my sister was three, he shipped off to Okinawa for a couple of years through the Vietnam. And my mom got dropped off in Brooklyn with a giant Italian family. I don't remember much of that period, but really from there, we moved around a lot. We were always just, it was just a military kid life is a game of survival. Mm-hmm. You're getting to a new place. You're learning to adapt. You're unpacking, you're figuring out what was broken and lost, you're making new friends, you're trying to figure out where the bus stop is, get into your new class. And just when you get in the groove of it, you find out you're going somewhere else. And then you're kind of on the the let it go phase, probably that last eight months, a year, you're just kind of, you know, you're leaving anyway, so nothing really matters. Pack it all up and take the circus to another town. So it's, uh, it's definitely forming. And one of the things I talk about is it does great for survival and resiliency. It doesn't do a lot for the longevity and planning of a child. So when I graduated high school, I went to two separate high schools. And at my second high school, I got there a week into my junior year because you can never move in the summer. And my friends, the new people had asked me, the new people I'd met had asked me where I was going to school at. And I said, I am in school. They're like, no, college. And it just wasn't a discussion in my house. So they actually helped me get into school helped me figure out what to do, showed me what to do. And I got to college and I got on the campus of Old Dominion University and I was in this pre-engineering, electrical engineering curriculum. And I was in these giant 700 person classes. ODU is not a big school, but I just didn't fit for some reason. 
And I look back on it now and I realize this was my first transition out of the military. Mm-hmm. You know, my dad was in the Air Force. We grew up on these giant Air Force bases. We lived on base. We ate on base. We went to school on base. We shopped on base. We always in the military, even our parties. When we got to eat, we'd go to the, we'd go to the club on base. When, when it was time for a party, it, the squadron, we would go there and there'd be buckets of beer and we'd party out when it was time for uh, real entertainment. We'd go to the air show and we'd stand on the edge of the flight line and the planes would like fly right by us. So it was, it was just total immersion. And I look back on that and it's exactly the same feeling I had then that I had when I got out of the Navy, which came about because I didn't, I just couldn't keep going to classes. There was nothing keeping me going to classes. And I literally just gave up. And my dad had recommended, I called this guy and it was a Navy recruiter. And I went down and we talked about it for a while. And I said, let me get this straight. You're going to teach me how to run a nuclear reactor. You're going to let me be on a submarine. You're going to pay me. And you're going to get a place to sleep before Christmas when I go home because I'm getting kicked out of the dorms. And the guy said, yeah. I said, this is, uh, where do I sign? Sign me up. And yeah, Christmas Eve, I was on a train to boot camp coming out of Richmond. And uh, that was the start of my military career. I enjoyed it. I did great things. I could have done better as I look back on it. Is one of the reasons I enjoy helping people reaching back and trying to advise them on some of the crazy mistakes I made. And I never thought about if I would give it a life or not. I would give it 20 around, around the eight and a half year point. I'd been battling some illnesses and eventually got to the point where I got medically retired. So at 26, standing on my front porch with a four inch stack of papers that I have no idea what they mean. I call work and the guy said, yeah, your paperwork came in. You don't have to come in. And I said, where do you want me to go? And he said, I don't care where you go. Just don't come here. And that was it. Just it. And I was just like, wow, that is not only the entire life I've ever known gone, but it's gone permanently this time. I can't even join the reserves. I can't do anything with it. I'm just out. Enlisted submarine sailor, lots of sea time. My dad, growing up in that front, in that kind of working man's world, my dad always had two jobs. My dad would drive a tow truck to work and take calls while I was at work. And he had his vacuum cleaners in the tow truck and he would sell those on the side. You know, my mom would work at night after she put us to bed and she'd be home in time to get us off to school and she would sleep during the days. And that was just our life. And I embraced wholeheartedly when I was in the military. It was just give it all up for the military. And that was it. And it wasn't uncommon to be away from home port for 280 or 300 days a year, working 12 hour shifts for six months straight, seven days a week. And it was just, it was it. That was your life. And when that all came to an end, that was definitely an abrupt challenge for me. But it was shaped. If nothing else, I understood what it was like to be a, a young enlisted service member. You know, and I think that's critical going from that ungrounded lifestyle where the only place you felt comfortable was in the military and then back in the military, but then understanding the hardship of people outside the military don't understand that you may need to have a second job or have a two or three small income household to be able to make it. And that still exists today. We see a lot of folks that are doing that. This is one of the big problems that happened when COVID came in, military families. Those jobs that, that they were holding down on the side, the micro jobs, were the first ones to go. And it's some of them would even get approved by their commands to have a second job. I've had, uh, I've had a client call me that said, he said, I've done everything I can. We're living in the Navy Lodge. I got married six months ago and we haven't gotten BAQ and we've been living in the Navy Lodge and my credit cards are full. My wife works two small jobs. I'm working at Walmart right now. I'm allowed to do this after work. And I, I sell blood and do medical tests to make money. But now we're out. I can't stretch it anymore. And it's just, I couldn't imagine being under that much financial stress for that long and not, and, and not being able to get out of it. It's just like the people just keep trying and trying. And the challenges continue to mount and they're real. So I'm thankful that there's places like Step that are, uh, that are there to help those folks that are ready to change their life. 
And so that's the work that you do now in the nonprofit mm-hmm. space after some time in the, the corporate sector. The work of the Support the Enlisted Project is to ensure financial stability specifically, or, or maybe even targeted to young military families. And, and looking through the white paper that you produced, I'm going to make sure that's in the show notes. I saw this phrase, upon enlistment, Service members are predominantly single, but by age 25 are twice as likely to be married than their civilian counterparts. Now, that was me. I was married as an E5, and I remember times as a staff sergeant, and I was in for 10 or 11 years at that point, where I was putting 3 or $4 in my gas tank just to be able to make it to payday, mm-hmm. trying to ration how much, just figure out how I can stretch these last $10 with two toddlers at home. People outside the military don't understand that sometimes. Yeah, it's interesting. I get a lot of comments about people that that let me know how the military should treat their money and how they should manage their money. And I've been standing in front of people and they've said, you know, because we specifically serve, so that's what we consider young military families. It's a civilian way to say it. This woman got up and she says, I just don't understand why you serve E6s. And I said, I said, when I was an E6, I didn't have, I lived, I, every two weeks I'd go to the ATM machine and pull out whatever money I could. And we'd go drink a lot of beer and put gas in our car. And then the next week we wouldn't have anything. She said, so actually before that, she said, she thought it was the people weren't smart enough. That was what she said. And it's not an intellectual problem. And she said that. And I said, I was a submarine nuke. I said, I'm literally the smartest person in the Navy. It's the highest ASAP scores to get into this field. So obviously I'm probably not the smartest guy, but I'm doing the job of the smartest people in the Navy. And me or my friends couldn't control our money. The two were separated. And then she said the E6 comment. And I said, when I was in E6, I didn't have money then either. But it doesn't matter. I'm not a stupid person. And when I did my TED talk, I rolled some of those components in because getting ahead of what the listener wants to put in there is really critical. And if I can get If I can block off those avenues where they blame the people for getting into these financial troubles and it's not an intellectual capacity issue. I know that from personal experience. It's not whether there's a lack of financial education. There's tons of financial education available to military folks. It just doesn't get in their head the right way. And a lot of folks want to say that it's military, that they join the military because they don't want to be responsible for life. And I said, no, that's not true either. And when I start my TED talk, I start by talking about the financial habits of America in general. So three out of five Americans spend their entire paycheck or more each month. Half of all Americans can't come up with $400 for an unplanned emergency. And it it just goes on and on. It's just abysmal numbers. But every year, 200,000 of those people with average American habit join the military. And they come from every state, every class, every demographic. It's a pretty decent representation of America. And what do we do with them? So we take this person with average financial habits, which are terrible to begin with, and we rip them out of their home environment. We take them away from their cousins and their family and their mother. We move them around the country every two or three years. We pay 70% of a low-income wage. We put the spouse in a 50% unemployment, underemployment rate. We deploy the service member between a half and a third of the time. And oh, by the way, that service member is in the third most deadly occupation in the United States, where over the last 30 years, more service members have died from work-related accidents than any other cause. So there's a lot of stress in the situation. They're doing a dangerous job. They can't afford to goof it up. And then that's not even touching on the security clearance piece. How, How do you expect this family to be any better than the average American? We're putting an increased burden on them financially and with the job responsibility and the risk associated with their jobs. There's no way those families can be better. What they are better at is being driven to want to correct and get out of these financial pitfalls that pretty much everybody they know are in. And that's really where Support the Enlisted Project came in. And when we create, created it out of another agency, and it's, I wanted to take the best of it. 
what's the most important thing we're doing? And it was really about this financial support. We would give money to people that were facing an eviction. Their car was being repossessed. Their lights were getting turned off. They couldn't feed their kids. And we're like, that is like the place we need to be. But how is it going to change? And to me, watching my parents, to me growing up, me being completely self-made as much as a person could be. It's like, how do I make sure that this military family that I paid the rent for this month never needs support paying their rent again? To what end are we handing out Band-Aids? And it's, let's not hand out Band-Aids. Let's hand out a way that they don't need another Band-Aid. And that was really where we brought in this financial behavioral intervention program where we created that. It's financial counseling from a behavior standpoint, taught by social workers, using social work theory, five different modes of social work theory. And then we put it across this change management platform where the service member can call us and say, or walk in the door and say, I can't feed my kids tonight. And they said, you could help me. You know, he's saying that to a social worker. A social worker doesn't hear the words that he's saying. What she's hearing, I don't want it to be this way anymore. I can't do it alone. And can you help me? And that's what she needs to know. And she's not going to say, oh, it's going to be okay. We're going to take care of it. She's going to look him square in the eye. This is just a case we had and say, how do you want it to be? I want to feed my kids tonight. Or I I don't want to get rid of my car. Or we need the lights on. Or we don't want to get moved out. We we want it to be different. Okay, this is going to take some work. Are you in on that? And those families work hard to create a plan and a path for themselves. And what they get from the social worker is education, empowerment, coaching, and somebody that's always standing next to them and say, okay, look, another challenge. How could we tackle this? What do you think we can do here in this situation? What do you feel about this? What are your goals? Where do you want to be in five years? Where do you want to be in 10 years? How long do you want to stay in the military? Oh, you want to own a house? When would you like to own a house by? Or you would like to be out of debt? Or I'd like to do this. We've had people say, I'd like to be able to pay my parents' oil bill and fly home once a year to see them. That's a financial goal. These are the things that people want. And I think this is one of the reasons that STEP is ultimately 90% successful in permanently changing financial behaviors because our social workers never make a single decision. All they do is coach and guide. And really based on this solution-focused approach, they ask a lot of questions. And They've profiled the individuals. They've profiled the, they understand how they need to approach each of these situations. They dig into the heads of these folks and figure out the backgrounds and the drivers and the motivators. And they start asking questions to pull them along, realizing where they're at in their world and pulling them along to creating a working budget. We're not going to say, is it, you can only get your hair done or you can have TV, you pick. They need to figure it out. They need to do, this is the amount of money you have. And this is, you have to spend less. How are we going to do that? We'll help you all day long. As soon as you stop helping yourself, we're going to stop. And we'll stand there right next to you and look at you. If you want to take another step, we'll go with you. And so at the end of our intervention, they have, they're completely empowered to make it work on their own. They've created their own budget. They've created their own financial goals. They created a debt reduction plan. And they've created a paycheck by paycheck budget that they can adjust. And it's not rocket science. It's on an Excel spreadsheet. And it, it takes them out through the next couple of years. And that's when their intervention ends after about 15 to 20 hours of counseling. But we know we've got to think about step eight of the change process, John Cotter's change process, which is institutionalized and really anchor these new behaviors. So our social workers will call them back 30 days, call them back at 60 days, calls them back at 90 days, calls them back at six months, calls them back at 12 months and just checks back in with them and guaranteed at 30 days, the budget's blown up. This didn't work. This happened. That happened. And they go, okay, that happens. So what are you going to do? How can I help you get back on track? And then we do that again at two months and then three months. And by the time six months comes around, they kind of understand how to go with the waves and take the blows, but get back up and refigure everything. And a year post-intervention, 90% of the families are in a better financial position than when they graduate the program. And they're still on track with at least one or more of their financial goals. They've gotten it figured out. They learned how to fish. If we need to at the beginning, 
we'll give them a fish too. About half the people need money, but the other half, we can help them figure out how to use their future dollars to stop today's loss. And I honestly think it's really not about the money. In fact, I think sometimes people are more proud of their effort when they make it and they didn't have to take a grant. But over the last nine years, we've granted about $2.3 million on behalf of families to landlords, transmission shops, electric companies, the diaper people, cribs, car seats, food, you name it, we've paid for it just to make sure that we can bridge that basic necessity to the point where their new budget and their new world can take over. See, and what I really appreciate about that is the deliberate intention and education, because that's how, as you'd mentioned, that's how we learned the poor financial habits before. My parents Mm -hmm. were blue collar, right? My mom was a seamstress and my stepfather was a maintenance worker. My dad was a security guard after being a veteran. And so they taught me the habits that I had, this idea of the multi-generational financial spending habits. But then what you're doing is deliberately and intentionally teaching new habits. We learn the bad way unintentionally, but you're intentionally teaching people the better way. Yep. And so, and in, in, as you were talking about, a lot of people, again, outside the military may have some of these misconceptions that the military is a steady paycheck and they have the free dental and the free medical, but service in the military is as much a financial sacrifice as it is a sacrifice in any other way you, you referred to the inherent danger. What are specifically some of the programs that, that STEP provides? You talked about your educational programs programs and things like that? That's a good question because it's easy to look at everything we do. And really at the end of the day, the program we have is that emergency financial assistance program. Let's help active duty and recently transitioned veterans, E6 and below, who are facing a financial crisis, who have a piece of paper that says they're going to lose their house, their car, their lights are off, whatever. They're in a in a verifiable financial crisis and they're at risk of losing a basic necessity. Let's help those people get their basic necessities back and never lose them again. That is our complete job. Now, how do I find young service members to come into this program? I can't just sit on the street corner with my table and say, lemonade and emergency assistance. They're not going to come to me. These financial issues are some of the most intimate issues. I can't count how many times we've had somebody come in and their spouse has a clue they're getting ready to get evicted, where the car's gone because of not being paid, that they just end up lying to each other and covering up. And these are like, these are just terrible habits. So these are some of the most intimate issues. And one of the things we pride ourselves is the fact that around 95% of the people that come to us document the personal referral where they came from. They come to us because they're buddy. So 25% from friends and family and coworkers, 20% from military supervisors, 15% from Navy Marine Corps relief or associated, right? Army, Army aid, Coast Guard aid. And then another 20% from the personal financial planners at Fleet and Family or Marine Corps Community Services or Army Community Services. So the paid contractor that's there, it's the financial counselor. We've built great relationships with the military and they trust. The only thing we have is our reputation. If nobody trusts that we're going to take care of these families and do the best we can and live by that number one core value we have, which is to do the right thing, they're not going to send them to us. So 65% of my referrals come from on base and the other 35% come from about 140 different agencies. We're talking about schools, churches, community groups, large nonprofits, small nonprofits, city services, county service. It's like just a giant swath of folks that, that hear about this story and say, wow, man, you need to go to step. So how do I plant those seeds in everybody's head? It really just comes down to being a positive force in the community. I don't have money for a marketing budget. I can't get Trace Atkins on TV. So what we do is 
We go out to the community and we say, hey, we want to help military folks. This is what we do. It's back to school time. It's Christmas time. It's Thanksgiving time. Help us get some backpacks or some turkey dinners or some clothes together or some Christmas gifts or this or that or all these other things. And the community says, well, I don't know you well enough to give you 20 bucks, but I'll give you a box of diapers. I'll buy a backpack for a kid. Great. So we collect all that stuff from the community. Then we go to the military base and say, hey, 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 look what we got for you. And they go, where's the strings? And this is no strings. They go, well, what do you really do? And he says, well, we really help people in financial trouble. And they go, how much does that cost? I said, I don't have a program to charge you anything. I can't make a loan. I can't take money from you. Everything I do for the military families is completely free of charge. And that is how I find my donors and my community support. And by bringing these programs and a variety of other programs we have to the military families, we build a great relationship. When COVID broke out, the military called us because they trusted us. They knew us. And the first chaplain to call us said, hey, I got the duty sections rommed on the ship. They can't leave. Nine of them just tell me that their wives have got no diapers and baby food at home and their wives are scared to leave the house. We looked at our program and said, we don't have anything to do this, but here's some paperwork. Have them fill out the paperwork. Tell us the sizes. Sign here. We'll put it all on a pallet out back. and You can come by tonight and pick it up, chaplain, and deliver it. And that's, that's how we did it. He would have never called us if he didn't think we could help. And tons of other military commands wouldn't do that. So everything else we do is about providing a positive brand impression. Let them know that's the place we really go when we're in financial trouble. And it's also going to provide either some financial education or offset a cost. So if I got a bunch of donated baby goods and clothes and, and toys and books and stuff like that in my warehouse. If people want to come get clothes for their kid, come get clothes for your kid. Remember who I am. And when you need financial help, I'll help you then too. You've got a great program, Tony. If people wanted to find out more, and that's really what we're trying to do is spread the word and help people understand more about what you're doing, how can they find out more about STEP? So the best place to go is our website, and it's uh, teamstepusa.org. That's also our handle for all of our social media, Team Step USA. And up in the top right, there's a button that says, you know, apply for services, volunteer your time, or donate funds. And that's really what we need. We've been serving Southern California, the eight counties in Southern California, which is about 13% of the military now for the last nine years. A year and a half ago, we started serving Washington. So we've expanded up there. That's our pilot expansion. We can make that work. I don't see why we couldn't continue to be able to provide our services to more and more of our young enlisted families across the nation. We'll definitely to cheer you on and uh, look forward to having you do that. Really appreciate you coming on the show today, Tony. Thanks. I really appreciate you, Wayne. Once again, we would like to thank this week's sponsor, PsychArmor. PsychArmor is the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military culture content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners, as well as custom training options for organizations. One of the things that I'd like to talk about is the need for organizations like Support the Enlisted Project. Anyone who has served in the military will tell you that you don't join the military to get rich. Old timers will tell you about how little they were paid. The 1968 Enlisted Basic Military Pay Chart shows that an E-5 with over six years of service was paid a whopping $324.90 a month. Different times, certainly, and completely different military, but it's a legitimate point. Then, and now, the military wasn't going to make you money. There are certainly many reasons to join the military, and some of them are financial. For someone like me, who was working jobs at a pizza joint 30 hours a week making minimum wage in the 90s, Making $933 per month as an E2 seemed like I hit the lottery. 
And yes, the military does give you money for housing, a bit more money for food when you have family, or feeds you for free if you don't. It has great educational benefits that can lead to greater income later on, but when you're in the military, doing your job, it's not a great moneymaker. As I mentioned in the show, joining the military is a financial sacrifice just like any other. Take a look at the military pay scale for 2021. An E6 in the military with over eight years, an average time that it might take for someone to get to that rank, makes $45,144 a year before taxes, just over $3,700 a month. That's not too bad, more than the average salary of school teachers in many places, which isn't something to be proud of. It's less than the average national salary for police officers and convenience store managers, both of which are around $54,000 a year. Yes, national averages can be deceiving, with some locations paying much more and some paying much less. But if a convenience store manager gets paid $23 an hour for a 40-hour work week, that's almost $48,000. I'm not trying to denigrate convenience store managers, an occupation which has its own unique stressors and even dangers, but simply provide a comparison of the financial burden that exists for military families. As I mentioned in the episode, my family and I qualified for WIC even as a staff sergeant in the Army. In Colorado, in order to be eligible for the Colorado Food Assistance Program, you have to have an annual pre-tax household income that is below $34,500 for a four-person family. The current 2021 pay scale for an E-4 with four years in the military, $32,556. Again, not trying to paint service members as victims or compare their situation to the real problems of poverty in our nation and around the world, I'm simply trying to point out the fact that serving in the military is a hard life, and that includes financial difficulty. On top of the low wages, you have the poor financial habits that Tony was talking about in our conversation. Young men and women who, away from home the first time, with comparatively more cash in their pocket than they've ever had, can make it flow out like water. We used to joke that you could tell that it was close to payday because dumpsters in the barracks were filled with cans instead of bottles. Alcohol consumption being another significant issue in the military, a topic for another time. But it's that feeling of buying the last thing you want or need with the last dollar that you have and toughing it out until payday that's a very real experience for military service members and their families. It's great that organizations like the Support the Enlisted Project are there to help, not just if there's an immediate need, but to be able to teach service members that fiscal responsibility that we never learned before. So make sure to check them out through the links in our show notes. For this week's Psych Armor Resource of the Week, I recommend that you take a look at the Courses for Financial Wellness. Thanks to PsychArmor's partnership with Prudential, this portfolio of financial wellness courses covers key consideration factors, manageable budgeting best practices, and encouraging and engaging resources to help military-connected individuals progress towards financial wellness. Explore the range of topics strategically designed to span across generations, kids, adults, and retirees. You can see the courses through the link in the show notes. So thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find at psycharmor.org forward slash BTM30, as well as on the PsychArmor website. You will find the link to everything we talked about in today's show, as well as hundreds of online training videos delivered by nationally recognized subject matter experts who are committed to educating the civilian community about military culture. All of these courses are free to individual learners. Thank you for joining me on this episode and for continuing to join us on this journey. You wouldn't be listening if you didn't care, and it's that curiosity and passion for supporting service members and their families that we want to encourage and increase. Come back each week for another conversation, and make sure to engage with PsychArmor on social media to let us know what you think about the show. 
I'd like to express special thanks to Operation Encore and Navy Seahawk pilot Jerry Maniscalco for our theme song, Don't Kill the Messenger. This show was produced by Headspace and Timing, and all rights to the show remain reserved by Psych Armor. Feel free to share the show. In fact, we would like for you to do that, but make sure you let folks know where you heard it. Join us next time for another great episode, and until then, stay aware, get educated, and be well.